Good morning. Welcome to Grace. My name is Brian. It's good to see you guys here this morning. You should have big, big smiles on your face because we're seeing the rain for, or the sun for the first time in 20 days. That should be an exciting, exciting thing. It makes life so much better. I um, want to thank you again for joining us. And I'm bringing out our gas can again. If you were here last week, John talked about our emotional tanks and how healthy relationships help fill our tanks. They make us uh, feel better about life. Psychologists and studies have said the better our relationships, the better the quality of our life. And so we talked about our emotional tanks. And I want to begin a little bit differently this morning and ask, how many of you guys have siphoned gas before? There's a couple of you. There's like 15 of you. This is a lost art, apparently. Um, I remember being 13 years old, and my dad taught me how to siphon gas. And we were working on a car, and the gas had gone bad in the gas tank. And so we had to get it out, and this is one way of getting it out. It's kind of the old-school, nasty method of it. But you put one end of the gas tank that you plan on draining out, and what do you do with this other end? You suck on it. It's great. (laughs) There's still some fumes in here. Um, It's not the best. So I remember being 13 years old, and the instructions my dad gave me was, okay, we're going to siphon this gas. Suck on it. That's all the instruction I got. Just take a deep breath, and once it starts going, dump it into the bucket. That's all I got. So if I remember correctly, it was something like this. It was a skinny, dark, black tube. And uh, what that meant was when I began sucking, I didn't have really much warning. Like I couldn't see the liquid flowing. And being so thin, about a second in, it hit me. So, And all of a sudden, mouth full of gasoline. What do I do? like everywhere. And of course, you know, at 13 years old, I'm not really caring where it goes. It goes on the car, it goes on my dad. My dad's cussing at me, like screaming, what are you doing? Put it in the bucket, put it in the bucket. Like that's the goal. Put it in the bucket. Of course, I never realized that gas could burn your tongue and your lips for like an hour or two afterwards. Like I got a good dose of it. Uh, Some of you are probably thinking that's why he acts the way he does. Um, (laughs) I only did it a couple times, but that was siphoning gas. And what I think stands out to me why I bring that up this morning as we talk about our emotional tanks is that these things, our emotional tanks were meant to be poured out of. They weren't meant to be taken from. Weren't meant to be taken from. We weren't meant to siphon love off of those around us. It was meant to be given. It was meant to be poured out. Same with this tank. Our emotional tanks are meant to be poured out. We're not to look at the people around us and say, okay, you've got something I want. Now give it to me. And that's a radically different thing because it's the same with love. Love is meant to be given, not taken. It's meant to be given, not taken. However, when our emotional tanks get low, when we feel like, man, I'm running on fumes, my tendency anyway is not to give but to start taking. To look at the people around me and say, you've got something I want. I've got to get that. Fill my tank. Make me feel better about myself. Help me to have better relationships. Do X, Y, and Z for me. And what happens is I go into this famine mode. The little bit I have, I've got to hold on to. The little bit I have, I've got to hold on to. So how this plays out in my relationship with my wife is I'm not going to do X until she starts doing Y. Like, my tank's feeling pretty low. I'm not going to show her love until she starts showing me love. I'm not going to be positive until she starts being positive. I'm not going to give you a hug until I get a hug. Like, I want you to make some, fill me up first, and then I'll do something for you. Um, John Gottman talks about this, and he calls it the negative effect reciprocity. Negative effect reciprocity. And this is the idea 
that if I'm negative to my wife 25% of the time and she responds poorly to my negativity, who wouldn't, the next interaction is 35% negative. Like, so I become negative, she becomes negative, and then I amp it up. Like, I double down, I become even more negative. Dr. Egrich calls this the crazy cycle. Like, you just get going, and all of a sudden you're feeding off of each other's negativity, and you're doing things that are harming each other. But it's because we kind of look at our tanks and we say, I'm getting low. I've got to get something to fill me up. And so we go into famine mode. It's looking at ourselves and trying to say, this is rightfully mine. Give it to me. I deserve this. I need this. This is why you're in my life, to build me up, to fill me up. So this morning, we want to talk about how we love. And Paul's challenge to us out of Romans 12 that breaks this negative cycle. The negative cycle Dr. Eggers calls the crazy cycle. Because we were not meant to siphon off love. We were meant to pour it out. So let's begin, as we have the past couple weeks, talking about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the foundation of everything that Paul is going to talk about this morning, kind of the foundation for this series. It reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, through the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. These verses lay the foundation for everything that Paul is talking about. And it begins, first of all, with an imperative. So Romans 1 through 11 lays up all this relational stuff between the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome, at the basis of their faith. And then Paul gets to this point in Romans 12, 1, and gives them a command. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice. And this is a defining moment. Because when we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, that means we are relinquishing control of ourselves to whoever we are being offered to. Right? So a sacrifice means I am giving myself to somebody, and now they have control of it. If you give a gift to somebody, they have control over how that gift is used. And it's the same with us offering our bodies as a sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is when we do that, God then takes responsibility for us. He is in control of who we are. And that leads to living a holy and acceptable life. Living a holy and acceptable life. But the goal, the goal of all of it, so we begin with the command and imperative, do this. And then he gives these three words, so that you, so that you may discern the will of God. The result of offering ourselves to God of becoming a sacrifice, coming under his control, his lordship, his rule, and living in such a way that is holy and acceptable to him. The result is we then know the will of God. We know the will of God, which is amazing because the will of God is in parallel to the sacrifice. It is good, acceptable, and perfect. It is good and acceptable and perfect. If you want your relationships to become healthy, if you want to see your family change, your coworkers change, if you want to see your emotional tank filled, there's something we have to do. First, we have to relinquish ourselves to God. And the result is that we begin to walk in the will of God. And when we walk in the will of God, it's good. It's perfect. It's acceptable. And that changes everything about our relationships because all of a sudden we're living differently. Something powerful happens When we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, what we're doing is looking to God and saying, God, 
It's not the people around me that are meant to fill my tank. It's looking to you, God, and saying, fill my tank. Pour within me your love, your power, your compassion, who you are, that I might walk into the will of God. And when we do that, life begins to take off. The only problem is, is that if this emotional tank stays full for too long without being poured out, what happens? It goes bad. Just like the gas, I had to siphon out of the gas tank. Sitting in that tank for too long without any activity, without being used for its intended purpose, begins to go bad. And so Paul says, once we've relinquished ourselves to God, the result is living in a certain way. Walking in the will of God, and that means pouring our lives out for others. And so verses 3 through 8 lay the framework for how we then pour our lives out for others. Lays the framework. It gets very practical. And it talks about the gifts that we have. So I want to read Romans 12, 3 through 8, if you'll follow along with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry and ministering. Teaching in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. And the compassionate in cheerfulness. Paul talks about the gifts that God has given us. And when he talks about these gifts, they're in relation to our relationships. They pertain to our relationships because he begins with, you are one body. That means everybody in this room, you are connected to each other. What you do, what you say, how you live impacts each other. And what Paul is saying is we need to grab hold of the will of God to begin to live a certain way because when we do that, it has an amazing impact on those around us. Each person benefits. And so what he's saying is you're responsible for one one another. You're responsible to each other. You help each other grow. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, how us grows, how us grows. Paul is giving us the key to helping each other grow spiritually, relationally, and to see life come back into our relationships. And it's all by using the gifts that God has given us. In short, accountability helps us grow. Accountability helps us grow. And accountability and gifts are intimately connected. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But accountability helps us grow. There's a scene in the last episode of season two of This Is Us. How many of you guys saw the wedding day scene? That last episode. Okay. Uh, A lot of you have a lot of catching up to do. We started the third season this week. Um, It's not really about the, the series, but, you know, it's good to follow along. There's a scene, and Kate is getting married. And she's been looking forward to this day her whole life looking forward to this day her whole life. And it's an amazing scene. If you are not catching these scenes on our text that we send out every week, um, the information's on the screen. It's on the back of the bulletin. Just be part of that conversation. Um, Just helps us dig into this series a little bit more, and it's something you can talk about with your groups also. But this final scene in season two is Kate's wedding day. And she's been looking forward to this day her whole life. And the only problem is, is her dad is not there to celebrate it with her. Her dad had passed, I think it was 17 years ago or so, a long time ago. And all of a sudden, every hope that she had for that day is kind of altered. 
She wishes her dad was there. And there, there comes this moment a couple hours before the ceremony where she's trying to wrestle with the place her dad has and Toby, her fiancé, has in her life. And she's trying to make room for Toby, but she doesn't want to leave behind her dad and all this mixed emotion. And a couple hours before the ceremony, Kevin and Randall, her brothers, who are playing wedding coordinator for the day, go to find her to kind of give her a rundown of what's coming for the rest of the day. And she's gone. Like gone like she's just bailed like there's one thing that you don't do as wedding coordinators you don't lose the bride (laughs) like that's that's going to decrease your pay it's going to decrease your respect like you just don't lose the bride of everything you do on a wedding day you don't lose the bride and here she is she's gone she's not answering phone calls she's not responding to texts everyone is freaking out and of course nobody wants to tell toby who wants to tell that to the groom so they take about it to go find her on their own without telling toby because his biggest fear is leaving him at the altar. And so he's off doing his own thing, getting ready, and Kevin and Randall hop in the car to go find her. And they kind of get to a point where they're losing hope. And Randall looks at Kevin and says, okay, let's play a game. It doesn't really seem like the right time to play a game, but the game we play is pretty good. How many of you guys have played Worst Case Scenario? And that's what they go into. Randall starts Worst Case Scenario, and he says, okay, have you ever played this game? Kevin's like, no, I don't think I have. He's like, here's how it goes. We put out our worst case scenarios and then, you know, it never really lives up to worst case scenarios. So it makes us feel better. And we're able to like address the situation at hand without all the anxiety. And so Kevin's like, sure, let's play the game. And Randall starts like this. I'm going to read you a few lines from the, the show. Worst case scenario, we never find Kate and we have to tell Toby that the wedding is off and he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> and Kevin looks at him and is like, wow, that got dark quick. Like, who starts out worst case scenario with death? Like, shouldn't that be like the build up, the ultimate? And so Kevin responds to Randall and says, okay, let me, let me give this a shot. And think about it. He goes, what if Toby doesn't die? Let's pull the death card off the table. What if he doesn't die, but he kicks Kate out of the apartment and she's forced to live with me, her twin? It's supposed to be temporary, but you know it never is. Neither one of us finds love. We become one of those creepy pairs of twins that grows old together. And we're in the grocery store one day and somebody mistakes us for husband and wife. (laughs) And you know what's worse? We don't even correct them anymore. Because what's the point? Life is over. Randall looks at him and says, wow, for the first time, you, you did a pretty good job playing this game first time. And then they take a moment and they recollect themselves. And they have this amazing experience that actually Pastor John talked about last week with self-awareness. And Randall looks at Kevin and proceeds with the game. What if after dad died, I got so consumed, absorbed in my own life with work, with school, with Beth, his wife, and his kids, that he stopped looking out for his sister? And then Kevin in turn says, what if I spent so, if she, Kate, spent so much time taking care of me that she forgot to take care of herself? And year after year went by and I should have recognized that I should have helped her, that I should have done something, but I did nothing. I didn't help her. And it's this amazing moment where the siblings realize that they were meant to pour into the lives of each other, into their families, but they've kind of gotten consumed on their own emotional tank. They've looked and they said, my tank is low. I've got I've to fill it up. And they've ignored each other in the process. 
See, they were more concerned with what they could take than what they could give, and they neglected their responsibility to help each other grow. Randall has this amazing life, and Paul talks about this sober judgment in Romans 12, 3. Sober judgment. Randall has this amazing life. He's got it all going for him. Things are looking good. He's got this high view of himself. He's got a high view of himself. And Kevin has this low view of himself. And what Paul is saying in Romans 12, 3 is, Randall, you've got it wrong. Kevin, you've got it wrong. It's not about having a high view of yourself, seeing yourself better than you are, or seeing yourself less than you are. It's about seeing yourself less. It's about seeing yourself less. It's not seeing higher or lower. It's sober judgment and realizing, I just got to think about myself less and put other people in front of me. And that's what Kevin and Randall realized in that moment is, I had it all going on, or I needed all the help in the world, but somebody else needed me more. Somebody else needed me more. And so they had this amazing reality that they just needed to think of themselves less. Paul, he's one of the greatest uh, people in the New Testament. He's written half of our New Testament. Apart from Jesus, it's arguable that he didn't, no one else had a greater impact than Paul. And he writes three times in these verses, by the mercies of God, by the grace of God, I say to you, the gifts are given by the grace of God. And why he keeps repeating this frame over and over again is because each of us has been given a gift, but it's not based on how good you are or how little need you have or how full your tank is. It's given based on the grace of God and what God is calling you to do with that gift, what God is calling you to do with that gift. And when we lift that gift up, we fade into the background and God's message comes to the foreground. We begin to think of ourselves less and therefore our relationships grow. The flow of this verse, verses one through eight, goes like this. And we could spend hours unpacking it, but I try to bring it in a concise way. Sacrifice leads to transformation, which results in sober judgment and leads us to service. Sacrifice leads to transformation, which results in sober judgment and drives us to service. Once we have offered ourselves to God and we've given him control of our lives, the way that we begin to walk in the will of God is by having our, new, our minds renewed and beginning to serve one another, helping each other grow. It's an amazing picture. What Paul is saying is you've been given a purpose and a gift this morning. Each one of you have a purpose and a gift. A purpose and a gift. The video clip that we sent out this week was an interview with Justin Hartley. He plays Kevin on the show, This Is Us. And it's a five-minute interview where he talks about the character of Kevin and how no matter how loud he screams out for need, nobody is willing to listen. Screaming out for need, but no one is willing to listen. There are people in this room that need you. People in your family, people in your relationships, your spouse, your children, they need you. And the way that we have a full enough tank to meet that need, to reach out to them, to respond to them, to love on them, is when we lay our lives down for God and say, God, fill me up. Pour your spirit into me. Fill me up with your love because there's somebody that has need for me. And that's what Paul is saying with this grace and the mercy. Somebody in your life has a need. A relationship has a need. And he's saying the only way that we can respond to one another positively that helps fill each other's tanks is by the grace and the gift of God. It's an amazing, amazing picture. 
You may feel empty this morning. You may feel I've got more needs than I have power to give. You may feel like the famine mode is necessary. But what we're called to do is look up to God and say, God, fill me with your grace and your mercy. Fill me with your grace and your mercy because someone else's tank needs to be filled. See, we're mutually dependent on each other. We're interconnected. And that's how us grows is when I'm pouring out my life for others and they're pouring into me. Dr. Henry Cloud says uh, this. He's a psychologist and a counselor. He says, the space where someone's need and your gift meet is the space for service, an opportunity, and perhaps a calling. If you feel like you've been without a purpose, if you don't have a calling, we need to begin to look to the needs of others, pouring our lives out for them. And in that, we begin to walk in the will of God and begin to see our relationships powerfully change. Chrysostom, he's a fifth century theologian, writes, love by itself is not enough. For there are many who have love in their mind, but do not stretch out their hand. Love in their mind, but do not stretch out their hand. This is why Paul calls on every means he knows to build up love. And Paul here in these verses talks about the gifts that God has given us. And through these gifts, able to build up love. So I want to talk this morning about two of those gifts. Two of those gifts. There's a lot of gifts here. We don't have time to go through all of them, but two of them, I feel, are essential. And they're, one way or another, gifts that all of us can play a part in. The first is prophecy. Seems like a scary word. Doesn't seem like all of us can play a part in that. But prophecy is about seeing something new. Seeing something new. It's not this weird time, end times caller, right? Like people who paint all over their car, God is coming, beware the wrath. It's not standing on the corner yelling at people. That's not really the goal of prophecy. The goal of prophecy is to know the heart and the mind of God and to be able to speak hope and life into a situation. To speak hope and life into a situation. To see something new. We've become so blinded oftentimes by our relationships. What's going poorly? It feels like there's no hope. People around us get locked into the memories of the past and feel like there's no potential for change. And what prophecy does is come along and say it may seem helpless. It may seem hopeless. But there's a God who wants to do something new. There's a God who wants to do something new here. It's a word that brings life. Prophecy has two different things, two different elements of it. It can be a word of warning. You see trouble coming, you need to get out of its way. Israel receives these words a number of times. Hey guys, you've neglected God, you've walked away from him, bad things are going to happen. And it's kind of like, okay, avoid all this stuff. And it's, you know, that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of accountability is avoid all the sins and life will be good. Avoid all the negative things and you'll be good. The problem is, is in avoidance, it can be like chasing my three-year-old. In avoidance, I could be chasing my three-year-old for 20 minutes and he can be running aimlessly trying to avoid me, but not going anywhere. What Paul is talking about with prophecy, seeing something new and talking about walking in the will of God is not avoiding all the things, although there are times for that. What he's saying is we need to have a picture of where we're going. It's fundamentally different for me to tell my son to avoid me, play keep away, and he runs in circles for 20 minutes, versus, Eli, we're racing to that tree. That tree is where we're going. That's the goal to which we're going. And all of a sudden, we make progress, and we head towards that tree. 
That's what God is calling us to when he says, see something new. Talk about the hope that is ahead. When Paul talks about the will of God, what is good, pleasing, and perfect, what he's doing is saying there's a better life out there. And when you live according to his will, when you kind of set that positive picture in front of you, what you do is realize that all the things, all the negative things, serve as obstacles into achieving that positive picture. And so Paul says you need to see something new. There's something positive that God wants to do in your life and your relationships. And if we see that and lock in on it, then we can make progress toward it. We are going somewhere. This is what Isaiah does in Israel's history. Israel has turned their back on God. It's about the 8th and seventh or eighth and ninth centuries. And Isaiah comes along and says, something's got to change, guys. And for the first 39 chapters, he talks words of warning. Turn your heart back to God. And all of a sudden, something changes in Isaiah 40 that changes the trajectory of their history. He looks at them and says, there's something new God wants to do. Something powerful God wants to do. When all things seem hopeless, when they're stuck in captivity in Babylon, and they have no way of worshiping God, living their own life, making it a living. Relationships are falling apart. There's no priesthood. There's no purpose. And Isaiah comes along and said in Isaiah 43, verse 8 and then 18 and 19, he, he writes this. Lead out those who are, have eyes but are blind. They're blind to the hope that's ahead of them because they're trapped in their struggle. And those who have ears but are deaf. Then he says this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Isaiah comes along and sees something new. And although all hope seems lost, he says our God is going to do something new. In our relationships, we need to be praying that God would open our eyes to the potential in the lives around us. To be looking at those who are struggling and saying, God, what do you want to do in their life? What hope can we bring to them? How can we build them up and point them towards the will of God? Secondly, teaching. It's not enough to bring something new. We have to bring something true. We have to bring something true. Bring something new, bring something true. I can try to create something new in the people around me and it still be all about me. My wife... I can look at her and say, okay, our life, our relationship would be so much better. Our emotional tanks would be so much better if you were just like me. It'd be so much easier, right? Like if you just looked at your spouse and said, okay, all this stuff would go away if you were just like me. That's something new for her. But it's not necessarily something true. And so what Paul is talking about is bringing something true. It's got to be based on something bigger than ourselves. If we're going to pour ourselves out into other people's lives, serve them, love them, give our gifts over for their own benefit. It's got to be based on truth, not on me. Because oftentimes I can pour myself out with the hope that they just become like me. That's called manipulation. Like it just doesn't work. It's not meant to be that way. So what God is calling us to is pouring ourselves out for other people that they might walk in the will of God, be transformed into the image of Christ, that they might see their lives transformed, their relationships transformed, because now they are living in that good, pleasing, and acceptable way. It's not based on me, but it's based on God. It's based on truth. When it's new, speaking hope and speaking something new, and it's based on truth, it's not based on my own desires, my own wishes, people pick up on genuine love, and their tanks are filled. It's an amazing picture. Last week, John talked about Scripture being part of self-awareness. 
how we need to be open to kind of connecting with this word if we're going to grow individually and be able to have healthy relationships. And Paul is saying the same thing. If we're going to pour into other people's lives and pour out something that is true, we have to be digging into this word so that when that time comes and somebody has a need, we have something to draw on. There was a time in my life, I think I was 17, it was the senior year of high school, and I've shared from stage before uh, that my father was an alcoholic. And there was a time at 17 where my mom and I decided it was time to leave, time to leave home. We didn't have a lot of money. My mom was an artist. My income was very limited. And so what we did one day is um, when he went to work, we packed up a suitcase each, loaded up the car, and left. And we stayed at one place for two weeks, and we stayed in another place for two or three weeks. And then we moved to another place for two or three weeks. And in about four months, we stayed at four or five different places, all over the place. Challenging time in high school. And we eventually came back with my dad agreeing to go to AA and counseling, which didn't last very long. And during this time, what was foundational was somebody who spoke something new and something true. I was at a, I visited a church one Sunday, and this guy walks up to me and he says, I have a word from God for you. And that scares you, right? Like, that's weird. Like, okay, back up. Like, let's just take a break for a minute. Like, I got all the words I need. We got some of this right here. I pray on my own. Like, just keep your word to yourself. I can go, it can go weird, right? It seems a little weird. It seems a little odd. And uh, I decided, I was like, okay, we'll just we'll be open. Be open. But I'm ready to shut it down at a moment's notice. Like, if this thing goes weird, I'm leaving. And so I'm listening. I couldn't tell you what this guy's name was. He didn't know my name. I can still picture where I was seated in that auditorium and what was happening at the moment. And he looks at me and says, I don't know if this is true. I said, that that makes two of us. I don't know if this is true, but this is what I feel like God is saying. Not knowing my situation, bouncing from place to place. He looked at me and says, I want you to know that God says there, there is hope. That there will be restoration after this period. It's like, I feel like you're going through something tough. I don't know what it is, but God wants you to know that there will be something new coming at the end of the journey. And where he locked it in was looking to Scripture. And he said in Psalm 1-6, it says that those who follow God will be like a tree planted by the streams. And he said, what I picture is you're planted by the stream. You've got these deep roots that are going down. These deep roots are going to hold you firmly in place through this season. And not only that, your mother is going to be able to lean on you. I look at him at that point. I'm just like, I'm bawling, like snots going everywhere. Like, I think it's the word of God, you know? Like, it's, it feels real at that point. But it's because he married something new with something true. It wasn't about him. He wasn't saying, hey, you know, you're going to hit a hard time. You've got to avoid all this stuff. Or, hey, young man, you're probably living like a crazy life. You need to wind it in because you're going to go through something hard. He didn't tell me all the things to avoid. He painted a picture. He said, there is something new ahead that God wants to do. And that helped me to lock in on that picture. And as distractions came, as kind of those moods came at 17 years old, I began to say, okay, what needs to happen in this moment? God, where are you calling me to? How can I walk in that will that I can hold true to this picture that you have given me? See, Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. If we want to see these negative cycles broken in our relationships, our tanks filled, our lives restored, our families restored, we need to begin to speak words of life, speaking something new, something true. We need to help each other grow, holding each other accountable, speaking hope and truth into each other's life. 
To get to that point, we have to know a source of hope. We have to know a source of hope. Before we can speak of something new, we have to know the character and the image of Christ. Before we can bring something true, we have to know the message of Christ. Only then can we look at our spouse and say, things are really tough right now. But I know that when we cry out to God, he's faithful and just to hear us. That he's promised to never give us more than we can bear. Or you can look at a friend or a family member and say, we have been called, again, truth, to bear one another's burdens, to carry one another. Ecclesiastes says, when two walk together and one falls, the other is there to pick them up. You can look at your friend, your coworker, your family member and say, let us be friends that will pick each other up rather than put each other down. And begin to see something new, to see something change. This morning I want to ask, what is the word God wants to speak into your relationships? What is the word he wants to speak into your relationships? This morning we're going to be praying that God would begin to transform our relationships and empower you to walk in the will of God and to use the gifts that God has given you to begin to pour out into the lives of those around you. I'm going to ask Naomi and the communion team to go ahead and get in place because we're going to be taking communion this morning. This is going to be an opportunity to think through what God wants to do. To be praying that God would stir something within us. In the words of Isaiah that we read earlier, he says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Our God, the God that Christianity holds to, and the one that's been uh, represented in Jesus Christ, Jesus being God himself, is the God of creation. And why that's important is because Genesis 1, when creation is coming into place, everything in, the, in Genesis 1 says that it was chaotic, it was formless, it had no purpose, it was void and empty. And God speaks something new. He speaks something new. And all of a sudden, all of creation comes into existence. Order comes in out of chaos. Abraham, who's been promised to be father of many nations, is 125 years old, has no children. He says it's not possible to be a father of many nations, to have a lot of children. And Paul picks up on that in Romans 4, 17 and says, I'm going to give life to your mortal body. I'm going to breathe life into it. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to call into existence those things which are not seen. That is the God we serve. When all things seem hopeless and helpless, to cry out to the God and say, God, do something new in this relationship. There's no better image of this than communion. No better image than communion. I'm going to read the passage in just a few moments after everybody's been served. But communion, in the midst of this new covenant, in the midst of what Jesus is doing, this takes place in the, the week of his death. He's just been betrayed by one of his closest friends, by one of his disciples. He's been betrayed. And immediately during that moment, he says, I am going to do something new. I'm going to create a new covenant. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, I'm going to ask you to hold on to your, your cups and your wafer, and we'll take it together. But as you hold communion in your hands, I want you to ask God, what is something new you want to do in me and in one of my relationships? What is something new you want to do? And we'll come back together and participate at that time. Well, this morning, as we look at communion, it's an image of something new. God doing something new in the course of history. 
up until the life of Jesus, humanity had one way of accessing God, of reaching out to him, of responding to him. And Jesus comes down into, or into human form and takes up what man could never take up, puts us into relationship with him by pouring out his life, by emptying his life on the cross. The cup that we hold is symbolic for the blood and life that Jesus poured out for us. Emptying his tank that we might be in relationship with him. So I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare for communion. And Paul writes this letter and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, which represents his body. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm doing something new. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. It says, as, long, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And why we proclaim his death is because in his death he has done something new. This morning I'm going to pray for each of you myself included, in the relationships that are represented in this room, that God will begin to do something new in your relationships. Will you bow your head with me and pray? Father, you are the God of creation to whom nothing is impossible. You give life where things seem completely dead and empty. Lord, I pray for every relationship in this room, for every individual in this room. Lord, that you would help them to connect and understand you more. Help us as Paul challenges us to offer ourselves to you, to grant you control, and more importantly, help us to walk in your will, that our relationships would change, Lord, that we would look to you to fill our cups, to fill our tanks, that we might continuously and endlessly pour out in the lives of others. Help us to hold each other accountable, pushing towards the goal that you've set before us. We thank you for this awesome opportunity to know you, to know your will, and I pray that it would come to life in the relationships in this room. We ask this in your name. Amen.